Today, Jake Moylanen and I sat down for a rapid-fire discussion about the economy, cryptocurrency, the future of a U.S. digital dollar, hyperinflation, demonetization, and more. We also touched on his trading strategies, seeking to destroy algorithms, and finding good signals amongst the noise. After this conversation, Jake agreed that we probably could have dug in much further, so I'll try to get him back on again. But for now, please enjoy my chat with Jake Moylanen. Hello and welcome to the Yarsnake Show. Today I have Jake Moylanen. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you yeah, doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Um, so you and I have kind of a short-lived um, professional friendship here, um, but um, we started talking because we were thinking about potentially working with some internet telemetry for the purposes of doing trading, like That's stock right. trading. Some quant trading. Yeah. Um, which was kind of fun because I had this uh, this big mass of internet telemetry. Wouldn't that be fun if I could make it somewhat, could we do something with it? Um, and you were definitely the smartest guy in the room in terms of what you could or couldn't do with it. Um, and so that's kind of how we, we got started talking. That's right. Yeah. We started, yeah. I mean, that was a few years ago now. but Yeah, a couple yeah. years ago, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so the idea was just generally speaking, if, if I could predict that something was related to a company, for instance, a bunch of subdomains or a bunch of, um, domains or whatever, and that was changing over time, maybe I could use that, use that to predict their earnings. And then you could do, use that to predict whether they're going to go up or down. That's right. Yeah. The, the server footprint, the bigger it gets, the more likely that they're, if they're, uh, there's a tie to the earnings, then it'd be up. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a basic idea. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, a fun little project. We didn't actually end up doing anything with it, but, uh, we tried a lot of experiments. Yeah. Did a few right. trades. Yeah. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, good. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that because you are kind of like this mad scientist when it comes to, um, trading, which is one of the reasons I've really enjoyed, um, kind of watching you from afar, but still talking all the time, if that makes sense. Because one of the things you also have is um, a little Slack channel called Red Team Investing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's just a Slack channel, but it um, started out with just my friends. And uh, we were trying to um, figure out how to trade better together and also invest in private market deals, venture capital deals. Uh, my background is in uh, venture capital and, and quant trading. Uh, but one of the things I always did whenever, whenever I was looking at a deal I'd have someone in the room say, tell me all the reasons why I should not do that deal called the red team. And they were pretty much going to tell me yeah, that this is idiotic. Jake, you're an idiot. Uh, but, uh, and if I still wanted to do the deal at the end of it, then I knew it was a good deal. So I want to take that same concept, but kind of build a, a place for my friends to go do it with me. And so that's when I created red team investing, which is a Slack channel. And uh, we do it for public market where we think the, the economy is going, where we think, uh, you know, if we see a, a private deal, we'll go and discuss it. Uh, so we've used it for a lot of things, especially crypto as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, although it seems like one of the things you focus on very heavily is the um, E-mini, um, the ES. Yeah, S&P um, future. Yeah. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit how that works? Like the way you first told me, it's sort of like waves of the ocean. Can you kind of explain what that means or how you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I use S&P futures a lot to help dictate where I think the market is going. And... Uh, Pretty much when I look at anything, I kind of look at things um, in different forms. So I look at it from like the the long form, which might be, uh, you know, is it you know is a Fed dovish or hawkish, and that kind of think of it like a, if you think of the waves and ocean, is the tide going in 
or is it going out? And the, the beach is, say, the price of that, of that stock or, or the market. And the further up the beach it is, the higher the price. The lower down the beach it is, the, the lower the price. So when the stock, uh, when the tide comes in, the Fed's, you know, reducing interest rates, then you start seeing a rising tide lifting, you know, lifting everything up, and, it, and the beach, it goes high, everything else goes higher. Now, within that tide, you also have waves. And so you have a wave coming in, which, uh, you know, that uh, the might, might be, you know, that just a normal kind of move, um, and then it, and it goes out. And so what you're trying to do is, um, you know, even within those waves, you have these small ripples, call it, that uh, where stocks move, you know, just you know, small, a uh, small amount, and you can do like scalp, scalp trading. But with the S and P, what I really do is I, I use that to help figure out where do I think the larger market is going, and uh, and then you know what stocks have high correlation with the market. And I know if say for instance it is at um, you know some stock is uh, say eighty percent correlated with the S and P five hundred. And I know the S&P 500 is kind of hitting that, that point when it's starting to start coming back. Well, there's a good reason why I should probably start looking to exit that position. Um, and yeah, so I use it all the time. And actually, I use it this, this morning was uh, probably a really good example. Um, I knew looking at the option market data that for gamma rebalancing, gamma just whenever the, the, um, a, a stock moves, they have to rebalance the uh, rebalance base off of the, the option exposure the market makers do. And uh, I knew that that pretty much around 3,900 on the S&P futures is kind of where it's going to peak out and it's going to have a very high chance of pulling back at that point. And you know that because there's a lot of uh, sell options. A lot of, a lot of, if you look at the, the overall landscape of the of the gamma profile of the S&P 500, you saw the, what we call a call wall, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty much kind of the limit of like when it's going it, to be really tough for it to go much higher. And, um, and so I knew that once it got to about 3,900, that it was, yeah, it's time to pretty much start exiting positions or at least taking a bunch of profits. And sure enough, today, it ended up hitting 38,950. So it pretty much just, just shy of 3,900, which is pretty much what, exactly what we expected. And, but I use that all the time as, as kind of like the baseline of like where, where things are going. And then and I, I use it to help trade around uh, to understand my risk level for any individual option or individual stock as well. It, it's sort of like like a, a war it's it's like a battlefield of a bunch of people fighting in one direction a bunch of people fighting in another direction and if you have big holes obviously the the opposing troops are going to get through kind of thing and absolutely it's like yeah it's the bulls and the bears and there's like these uh you know the support levels where you think it can go down to uh and then you know which is kind of like the line that the the bulls are trying to, to hold and then there's the resistant part where the the, the bears are saying okay we don't want that going any higher and once you finally break a line you know, there's a good chance that it's going to go to that next level. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to figure out what those levels are and then, uh, and then and pretty much say, okay, if it breaks that level, now it's time to, you know, start to, to go along or to, to buy or vice versa. If it, if it goes, if it's a support level going down, it's time to get out or, or to go short. Mm-hmm. I, th- I found that very interesting because you could almost watch, it's almost like a ball bouncing between like the old game of Pong or something. Where it's It really just, is. Yeah. Um, but the stronger, the bigger your paddle, the more likely you are be, to be able to hit it back kind of thing. That's right. The, the, the bears, for instance, if we if you break a, a resistance level, they're like, okay, let's go regroup at that next that next level. And we're going we're gonna to make a stand there. And so you know that most likely that that stock is going to go up to that next level, at least, or pretty close to it before you start seeing any major pushback. I've been meaning to ask you this question uh, a while now. Are there people who focus exclusively on just selling? Uh, they don't want to they don't want to be ever in a situation where they're the bull side. They just want to sell. Oh yeah. There's de- shorts. Yeah. yeah. There, uh, there's lots of uh, bears out there. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's tougher because the market's generally long and going up. So mm-hmm. to be a, be a, uh, be a bear, 
you pretty much have to be very tactical and get in and out. Uh, and it is very risky because if it goes against you, you have unlimited losses. You can lose, you know, forever. So yeah. uh, short squeeze. And, and that's why you see a short squeeze is like, okay, I know I'm losing. So now I, I got to, I got to get out of this position before I take a massive loss. So, okay. Are we in a recession? <laughs> Great question. Uh, I don't have the answer for sure, but from the classical definition, uh, yes, we are. Uh, the classical definition is two quarters were negative GDP growth. So we had negative 1.6 in Q1 and negative 0.6 in Q2, according to BEA.gov, which is, you know, hopefully reliable position to get this type of information. Yeah. So we are from that definition. We are now, you know, there's that classic definition, uh, but then there's also the definition is this a broad base, um, you know, broad based economic downturn. And I wouldn't say what we're seeing yet is a broad based downturn. So I think, you when know, you, when you mean broad based, you mean global? We're, well, you're seeing across all different sectors. Uh, you see, you know, you're seeing, um, you're seeing everyone pretty much being hit by it. Well, I was just curious, like, is, is this really a recession? Are we actually, because it seemed for whatever reason, it seems like um, Washington would like to make this a very political issue instead of just a, yeah, we're in a recession. Yeah. And time to get out of it. You know, this is, this is something that's happening and uh, it's, here's the steps we need to make to, to move past this point. It seems like everyone's fighting the definition of it instead of just saying yes or no. Or, um, so is this one of those things we're going to have to redefine what everything well, we're in at yeah, any given time, depending on the political climate, or is this, are we in a recession? A lot of people are trying to redefine what a recession is right now. Uh, Biden, has, I forget they call it what he called it, but it's, uh, he definitely is, is calling it, calling it, you know, it, it's uh, not a recession. Uh, Powell is starting to, uh, admit that maybe it is uh, that maybe we are starting to see some softness that the inflation is not transitory. Uh, but if you look at Powell, he had a real he's in a real tough spot where he was trying to um, so take a step back. Inflation is self fulfilling, so it's, it's reflexive. So as uh, you know, more people believe that there's going to be inflation, more likely it's actually to to actually occur. And um, and so where Powell is in this tough spot where he's like, okay. Uh, we also have this reserve thing that U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. So how do I make sure we protect that the U.S. dollar is still a reserve currency and that inflation doesn't hit it too bad because people are going to start you know, going away? Um, and we, we also don't want to and, you know, say that this, there's inflation here because it's going to start, you know, start being self-fulfilling. So he's trying to walk this line of saying that it's transitory, uh, which we all knew it wasn't transitory. There's no way this was transitory. Yet that was the narrative him and, you know, and uh, pretty much everyone on the Fed was, was kind of you know, was, was saying. Um, and, uh, and we, so we effectively, we, this is exactly where we expected things to go. Um, and it was, it was a, uh, a tough, tough downturn. Um, you know, one of the things is, um, you know, it, when you start injecting that much capital into the system, there's a good chance that, you know, that inflation is going to pop up, which is, is what we're finally, we're actually seeing. So we also saw a massive nosedive <clears throat> in valuations right around the exact same time. Um, I was curious, did you see that coming? Did you expect that to occur? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I remember, so I'm, I'm in venture capital, and I remember telling a lot of my companies last December, you need to be raising now, even though it's not a great time. Start raising now because there's going to be a lot of softness coming. And um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty obvious. And if you just look Which at it. Which seems like a good thing because now you get everything on the cheap, right? Yeah, that, that is a nice thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, but if you look at it, most most valuations of, of companies are done through a what we call a DCF model or discounted cash flow model, 
And all that does is look at all how much money they're going to make in the future, then discount it uh, a certain amount to, to get to what the value of that company is. And part of that, that discounting measure is, um, is what is the, the risk-free rate or how much, you know, what is effectively how much the, the, uh, the, the, the interest rates are, that the Fed are, are, are charging. And as that goes up, well, that means your discount rate goes, goes up, which means that your, uh, the, the valuation has to come down. And so we kind of we knew that this when interest rates started popping up, that it, that valuations had nowhere to go but but down, just based off of that 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 may uh, method of actually valuing companies. Gotcha. So, I want to know what you think about hyperinflation. Is this something we should expect? I mean, we're seeing a lot of inflation. And to to give some context for why I'm thinking this, if you go to the dollar store, it's not like it's five, seven percent more than it was before. It's 25 percent more. They raised the rates for the dollar store to a dollar 25. Um, you go eat uh, meat at a restaurant or whatever. It's much more expensive. It's not seven percent more expensive. Um, rates across many different industries are, you know, 20, 30 percent, not seven percent as is stated by uh, various inflation rates. So maybe inflation hasn't reached the different sectors yet, or maybe it never will. Um, but I'd like to hear you say whether you think this is in hyperinflation or we're pre-hyperinflation or you don't expect that to happen at all and it'll just stop or. Yeah, I don't think we're at any real risk of having hyperinflation. Um, hyperinflation is characterized of between 40 and 50% inflation, which we're nowhere near. And I, I don't anticipate that we would ever get to that level in the, at least in the U S. So I, that's not something I'm terribly concerned about. And I, I believe as we start seeing the energy prices come down, as we start seeing the supply chain alleviate, we're going to start seeing inflation coming back to, you know, back to the, the lower levels. So, so you believe that's going to happen? You think we've already started seeing a slowdown in inflation. Uh, so it, it is at least the, it's decelerating at this point. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So I, I had never heard this term until fairly recently, maybe a couple of years ago, the, the term a demonetization. So I thought this was actually a very clever thing. Um, so let me let, get a little backstory on this. So I went back and did some research. Uh, 1851 was the first uh, time I'm aware of it happened in the United States uh, with stamp demonetization. Basically, they said anything between these dates, uh, we're not going to accept those stamps anymore. So it's basically like the government doesn't have to risk having this this liability hanging out there or whatever. But then uh, it especially came to head in 1861 due to the American Civil War. Uh, obviously, you don't want to have to pay the bill of a person on the opposing side. So any stamps issued before this date, we're not going to accept, you know, it has, you had to have, you know, bought it between now and, you know, when the war started because it has to come from our side or whatever. So that kind of makes sense. It's the country fracturing in half. Mm. Um, and, uh, 1943 Anne Frank wrote in her, uh, diary that the 500 and thousand Gilder notes, uh, were no longer accepted. And that was largely to make sure that, uh, they knew where all the secret money was hiding out. Uh, so you, you could, you could take it to the bank and you say, well, I've got all these, you know, thousand Gilder notes. It's like, okay, well, where did you get this? Show me proof that you actually earned this money and why you have it in your possession. Uh, so that was a way to kind of out people who might be doing things against the Nazi party. In 2016, Modi in India, so this is the first time I had heard of it, um, they outlawed the 500,000 rupee note, which was 86% of all cash in the country which that's insane. I mean, that's, that's like three quarters of the bill in your pocket or more suddenly not being worth anything. And they had like a week to get 
to go to the bank and explain why they have the money and convert it into banknotes that you know they support there. So if you're a drug dealer or a terrorist or whatever, and you show up with briefcases of money, and they're like, hey, where'd you get all this money? And you didn't declare it. And you know, so it's a quick way to get rid of a lot of dark money. And then <clears throat> this is where I really started taking interest in it. So the Boulevard Sobreño, um, which was the uh, Venezuelan uh, cash, uh, went to the Boulevard... Um, I, I, it started at a hundred Boulevard note and then it went, which was 77% of the nation's cash at the time to the Boulevard Sobreno, which was, um, basically a hundred thousand dollars, uh, worth. And then they went to the $1 million Boulevard digital, which actually isn't a digital note. And, um, the estimates are it was something like a $10 trillion, um, deflation, but they also got rid of all those old notes. So anybody was stuck with these old notes you know, what are you going to do? It's not worth anything. It's not even worth the paper it's written on. So as a monetary method, uh, like, what do you feel about that? Is that something, let's say the United States went and did that. Suddenly they said $100 notes are no longer worth anything. You know, you have a week to turn it into the bank. Yeah, I don't think we're in any real risk of that occurring um, in the U.S. at least. Uh, I do think there is a, a very strong possibility that the U.S. will adopt a digital currency. Um, and the implications on that, you know, there's, you know that, there's a lot. I think that wouldn't be a bad thing. I think one of the nice things about digital currency is it would actually help the Fed do their job more effectively. They can see where where money's flowing and, and get an idea of, of how bad inflation is or you know uh, how how bad things are in different aspects of the, of the of the country much more easily. Now you, you lose privacy. That's the major downside to it. Um, but you know I I, uh, I think you know there's a lot of a lot, a lot of benefits to it. Uh, so we. We, I don't think it would ever. The, we're actually going to see any, you know, the, the actual dollar, hard dollar, go away ever. Even, even with a digital currency. I don't think so. I think there, there will always be a demand for for digital currency. I mean, but also think about how many times do you maybe don't have you mean uh, physical, a physical, um, physical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't have, uh, you don't actually have your your phone on you, for instance, and you need to pay with with actual real, you know, physical currency. Um, I, you know, that I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, I feel bad for the homeless because, uh, you know, they're going to, you know, there's going to be no way, way to actually really ever give them anything uh, going forward, I think, at some point. But um, I mean, the we're at F1 uh, this weekend, and I think the it's the first time I actually had physical currency in a very, very long time. So I do think we are moving to that, to the, the more digital, uh, but I don't think it's going to occur uh, completely where we just completely remove uh, all physical. I mean, what is the implications for that? I mean, if, if I... Um, just the average person walking around town and the government's tracking every single thing I'm doing, obviously that's going to end up in the hands of <clears throat> marketers and resellers and anybody who wants to have my data. It's guaranteed it's going to, it has to be open, right? It's going to be monetizable by anybody. That's, that's already occurring today. I mean, if you have your credit card and you go and you use that anywhere, uh, there, I mean, as a hedge funds can go buy that data to know who actually, what you're actually transacting on. Now, they might not be able to get down to the SKU level, but they at least can see that you went to Best Buy and you spent $1,000. That occurs today already. So, mm-hmm. and people are monetizing off that today. Um, now, this, you know, there might arguably be more privacy because this is controlled by the government and they might not allow for people to go sell that data, which, uh, so that there is, you know, they might actually say you might have more, pri- more privacy because of it. Um, I do think that, you know, that it's going to, um, I do think it's going to be a good thing. And frankly, if I was going to short any stocks, you know, going over the next 20 years, it's going to be Visa and MasterCard. I think they had a, a Kodak-like moment where when the digital camera came out that pretty much, you know, film pretty much went away. 
I do think that if the digital currency ever becomes to fruition, that uh, that you're not going to really need credit cards anymore. You're not going to have to pay the exorbitant fees that, that MasterCard and Visa charge. Uh, so it would definitely be, I'd be shorting that long term. Mm, interesting. And what about the fraud systems that those companies bring along with them? I, I mean, think they're going to have to adopt to a more, um, to provide, provide value add on top of just being able to transfer money. Um, and actually, one of the, the things um, in my venture capital firm we invested in was a, a company called Simple ID, which does um, along the same thesis where you could go, uh, you'd say you charge, a, charge something on your credit card, it goes and pings your phone and it uses your biometric on your phone to identify that's actually you. Now, features like that, I believe, is what where MasterCard and Visa are going to have to go to provide extra value on top of just money transfer to be able to charge anything. Otherwise, I think that they just go away. So how do you get your money back? Because right now we have at least some assurance that the Visa and MasterCards of the world will give us our money back. Well, and that's and that's probably where, you know, another thing where they, they actually do play and why they, you might want to pay a little bit to them is because you would, you know, at least have ability to, to get money back to, in some extent. So the uh, the money that would have gone to Visa and MasterCard now go to a centralized company that holds some amount in escrow to pay off people who've been ripped off by your by adversaries in the middle who are trying to buy, you know, TVs from Best Buy or whatever. So Best Buy goes to some company and says, I'll pay a million dollars a year as an insurance, let's say. And if anybody has their money stolen by virtue of getting TVs from us that they shouldn't have gotten, we'll pay out the victims or something like that. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of new businesses that could pop up from that. Mm, Interesting. So it seems like there is some move to devalue the dollar. Um, So uh, the petrodollar is starting to get a lot more press than uh, than um, in the context of this war in Ukraine to turn into the you know the uh, petro ruble. Let's say, um, first of all, your your take on that is that is that something that you think is actually an intentional move by the oh for sure yes I okay. mean the CCP is for sure trying to devalue and destabilize the U.S., um, you know, destabilize U.S. dollars as a reserve currency. So would you have done that move if you were them? Is that pretty much how you would do it? I, I think they, it's a, it's death by a thousand cuts. They're trying to chip away wherever they can. And that's an easy place to, to kind of go after. Because one of the things they did, um, they grabbed two to time, three times the amount of strategic gold reserves after the Crimean War. Um which they handily won, but that that signaled to everybody, you know, post hoc that they they assumed that their money wasn't going to be worth very much anywhere else in the world. So they're going to have to trade with something else, or they wanted a lot of strategic reserves. Um, is having like a lot of gold, you know, two to three times the amount of gold that they had before, and just less than ten years before. I mean, is that a good place to start? I mean, how do you future proof your currency? Yeah, you know, I don't know for sure, uh, but. I would, this might not be a popular opinion, but I don't think gold is going to contain the same type of value and, and, and matter as much as it did in the past. I, I do think that um, uh, a crypto asset, a digital asset like Bitcoin will supplant uh, gold at some point. And uh, I think the actual structure, I, I think it actually makes the most sense is you have, uh, you have the, you know, just the way that gold um, was used for, uh, used for, everything was back to it. You weren't actually exchanging gold. You weren't actually handing. I was, you know, if I go to the store, I wasn't going to give you gold. I mean, maybe back, way back in the day, but dollars were, were created to go to go exchange instead, and that was actually the medium of exchange. Well, I think the same way Bitcoin is actually going to be a, a store of value 
uh, going forward, and it's going to take away some of the, the requirements for gold. Uh, and, and you're not going to actually exchange Bitcoin. Uh, it's, it's still clumsy. It takes about an hour to set, settle still. Um, it, you can't handle that many transactions anyways. Uh, and so it suffers from all kinds of like things, like 51% attacks and all kinds of things. Correct. There's, there's still lots of issues with it. I think that the actual, the magic formula though, is you have, you do have uh, Bitcoin as a store of value equivalent to gold. And then to actually go do the medium of exchange is going to be a digital currency of some sort. And I do think that the U.S. dollar is in the best position to be that digital currency. Uh, as, or a digital version of the U.S. dollar is probably the best best ways of doing it. Uh, a lot of these other crypto coins and tokens, I mean, they're, they're going away. Um, no one really trusts them. Uh, stable coins, no one trusts at all. So at the, you really need to have something like the U.S. dollar, a digital form of that, to really be able to, to do that well. I read somewhere that there's <clears throat> as many as 12,000 or more um, crypto you know, shit coins that have gone, out, gone under in just this last year alone. And something much higher than that, like 17, 18,000 total since, since this whole boom began. I mean, that, that doesn't signal to me that it is a, you know, well-lit ecosystem, you know? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <clears throat> yeah, I, I do believe that almost all those coins are going to be going away. Uh, I think there's only uh, a handful of actual good use cases for a lot of the, 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 uh, the crypto tokens that are out there so far. You know, I, I'm sure there'll be more, but I haven't seen a ton. So why, why do you think it is a good replacement for cash? I mean, what, I mean... It seems like we already have the system. It already works well. I can fulfill anything any you know at any time. There's no reason I can't transfer money across the world with just my bank and a you know internet connection. I mean, we already have all these features. What what does that give us? And and frankly, I do have quite a bit of privacy. I mean, um, while it is yes possible for some hedge fund to maybe know bits and pieces of my financial history, they only know bits and pieces at best. You saying is it why why? Why is it better for the average consumer? Why do we want to switch to it? To a digital currency? Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there are reduced fees. If you don't have to pay Visa, MasterCard, 2.5%, that adds up. Imagine doing a, you know, even a $500 transaction. That starts, you know, that starts adding up over time. Uh, so I, I think that people are going to want to, you know, reduce their, their overhead and their fees that, that are involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I do think that, you know, there, it is more convenient, frankly. You know, if you can just go and, and, tap your phone on, uh, you know, to go pay and be purely cashless. It's, it is just frankly more convenient. So I think the convenience is ultimately going to win out uh, at the end of the day. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and fees as well. So why wouldn't the uh, Visa MasterCards of the world just drop their fees? I mean, just get down to next to zero and then use this ad model or, you know, selling their data to supplement. Uh, they make so much more on I mean, what's Visa's what some 400 billion or something, it, you know, they make so much money on the fees that it, they would, the revenue well, would be the cut. Al- alternative is go out of business, right? So well, they're going to have to cut their, their you know, their, uh, they're going to lose 80% of the revenue if they do, probably more than that. Hmm. Um, so they, they, I think they, they are pretty much are faced that they have to make it work and they're going to have to find other ways to provide value to justify those fees. And I'm not sure that they're going to be able to. Hmm. So it seems like there is some element of the West that would like to crush the, the U S dollar and just get rid of it entirely. Um, but it seems like most of these people are primarily anti-government as opposed to pro cryptocurrency per se. You know, it's not like they're like, Oh, well the U S could be so much better if it were on a digital currency, but it seems like those people from what I can tell are not really 
uh, understanding what they'd lose if they got rid of the U.S. dollar wholesale um, and, and supplemented it not with a digital currency of the U.S. dollar, but a completely just get rid of the U.S. dollar completely. And now we have just cryptocurrencies in general, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum or whatever. Yeah, I don't think a lot of those people realize just how much they've benefited from the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency um, and how how much cheaper their cost of capital actually is. Their interest rates are lower. They can get mortgages easier. By the, the, the sure fact that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, what they actually were from a different, you know, different part of the world, they might think, see things very differently. Uh, but I, I think it's just a, it's a very much a, a naive way of viewing the world. Hmm. So various different governments are now, they're sort of preparing for this future eventuality where everything will be digital. What, if anything, do you think the U.S., isn't ready. Why, why not just do it today? Why not just build it right this second and start implementing this? Yeah. I mean the, the systems, the software, it, it, it's going to take a lot of time to ever, um, to ever put in place. Um, I, I think it's like, it's like the, the, you know, Y2K bug, you know, that it, it, there's a lot of software written out there today that would be very difficult to retrofit and go, go change. So it, it could happen. It will, it will probably happen over time, but it's definitely not going to be, you know, it's not going to flip over, you know, in one day. And if you had to say approximately timeframes, when, when do you think that would happen? I know. Just guess. I mean, 10 if, years. I don't you know. All right. So, yeah. so another couple election cycles, maybe we might start seeing stuff like that because I think a lot of people see that as a, either strongly pro or strongly against. Um, and there's very few in the middle who are just going to go, whatever, I'll, I'll just deal with whatever happens. Uh, because I think there's such a huge privacy component. Um, and it's hard to have a digital currency that everyone can uniformly agree, you know, this person has this thing in their account or they don't if it's on a consensus protocol. or And then you get into all kinds of other things and and everybody can track it. You know, for instance, you know, it's one thing for me to swipe my credit card and go to a convenience store and the shop owner has no idea if I have a thousand dollars in my account or a million dollars in my account. They have no idea. So, but if they could just look on the blockchain and say, well, this person has traded like four, $400 million this week and, you know, in different commodities or whatever, well, maybe they got some money in their account and, you know, follow me home or whatever. Yeah. I, I do think, you know, one basic feature, core feature that why credit cards wouldn't go away is... If a digital currency would act like a debit card uh, where credit card pretty much you can go, you actually provide credit. And so you can go over your limit if you need to, to go pay off something and you take on more, you can take on debt. So there is a core feature to that, you know, now, and you know, how many Americans are in credit card debt? So they are definitely making use of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that leverage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so going into the future, I mean, there is always a possibility and we're already seeing this with China, for instance, with their social credit score, but there is a possibility that governments might utilize this. I mean, <clears throat> everybody has their flavor du jour of whatever government they want to be in control, but when any government gets unchecked, there's all kinds of problems and having very tight monetary control, um, whether it be to, to curb terrorism or, you know, stop child pornography or whatever good th- you know, original premise they might have. Ultimately, it leads to them also being able to flip the switch and say, "Okay, we have political rivals, and we needed to go take them out." Um, we were we saw this happen in Canada, for instance, when uh, the trucking, uh, a, uh, what it was the, um, 
the trucks basically went into, I think it was Montreal and locked the entire thing down. And then people were donating money to the families to let them keep on trucking or whatever. And, um, the, the Canadian regime basically said, no, if you do that, your, your business account is blocked and you can't trade anymore. Basically your, your money's locked up in this bank account. So we know that it can happen, uh, even in the Western world, this isn't like some far off location or something. So what, what is the average person to think of that? Like, well, do I really want the government, the centralized government to have that much access over my ability to spend, which even using banks, that's already a, you know, a bridge too far. And now you're also going to get rid of my cash. No, I think it's an absolutely fair point. Um, you know, I think the, it is, uh, unlikely you have, uh, three branches of government for a reason. Um, and even from a privacy standpoint, you look at how much government has gone after Facebook. Um, so I, I do think they'd be a, a tougher sell in the U S but that's not to say that it couldn't happen. I, that's why, that's why I think the physical dollar is going to remain, you know, for, into for a long time. And so how would that affect, let's say the average convenience store or Macy's or, you know, your car dealership or whatever, they're going to just eventually say, screw it. We just don't take cash because that's kind of already happening. That's already happening. Yeah. How many times have you gone to like a food truck and they won't accept cash It's, yeah. it's cashless is becoming more and more common. And under the pandemic, that seemed like that was a, a jump start to that direction. It's an acceleration for sure. I don't want to get too conspiracy theory, but do you think that that was part of the plan? Uh, do you think that was something that higher ups were like, hmm, actually this kind of helps this long-term game of getting more of this cryptocurrency out and getting people to move to a more cashless society, which we can track. Um, even if it's not us tracking it, it's a partner, you know, it's Visa MasterCard or it's the banks. I think there's a lot of economic destruction that occurred uh, that, you know, that, uh, that was just a benefit for them. They probably wouldn't have put us through that. I don't think uh, just to, uh, no, to not, 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 I'm not claiming that they created it for that effect, but more like, well, that was, you know, very convenient. Um, maybe we should double down on that in the future or, you know, keep people, keep people guessing it's already out there. Why not just to keep them in their household for a little bit while longer and using more and more cashless. And I'm not saying that that's true, but boy, that's, it's awfully convenient. You know, it did work out. <laughs> yeah. It's a little, little sketchy. Hey, Hey guys, I have a question from the control room. Yes. Um, Hey Jake, do you ever see the government when they set up the United States crypto service, do they, do you think they would basically say, get rid of all the Bitcoins, get rid of everything else. And you can only use the government currency, digital currency. Do you think that's a possibility? So outlawing all cryptocurrencies except for the U S one. I don't think so. Um, I forget the, the entity that monitor, uh, that monitors the commodities, uh, but both Ethereum and Bitcoin are, un- are, are actually under the purview of that, that entity now. And um, so I, it'd be very difficult to to remove those both uh, uh, just because it's, it's different branches that have to pay attention to it. Well, a follow-up question would be, we, we've seen China um, basically say that they are no longer going to allow cryptocurrencies in the country. It's probably an energy issue, you know, just too many people mining and it's unregulated, what, whatever. But what they haven't done is say you're not allowed to use um, currencies you know, other nations' currencies. But that seems like that would basically just perfectly say you cannot use this U.S. digital currency because it is a digital currency. It is a cryptocurrency. I mean, yes, they, they definitely would want to block the, the U.S. version. Um, I mean, they. I, my point, opinion is that the CCP was trying to do surveillance and ultimately control 
the, the monetary supply. So th- I think they that was very, very intentional. So how does the U.S. maintain itself as the premier dominant digital currency amongst a sea of literally tens of thousands of failed digital currencies? I think it. this is a much larger question. Um, so how the U.S. maintains the reserve of currencies, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. Sure. Let me take a big step back. Um, so one of the things I always look at is um, I try assessing uh, things over a larger time frame and then get uh, narrower and narrower. And um, there's a few models. I'm not not a classically trained economist. I, uh, I pretty much have learned everything I've learned out of necessity. But one of the things that I, you know, that if you look at it, um, I, 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 there's a few books I think are really, are really great models. Uh, Ray Dalio just had the Changing World Order book came out, which I thought was fascinating. And this really talked about how, um, how nations and, and empires have risen and fallen um, over hundreds of years. And and how and what what has done to a lot of the reserve currencies, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's been interesting because you, you see um, uh, you look at the you know Rome fell to the French, which fell to British, uh, which fell to the U.S., uh, and then you you see how the the U.S. is starting to teeter on the point where they're actually starting to lose control. Uh, they're not they're they're starting to be, become the the downfall of, of the, the the U.S. empire, and that's you start seeing that you know from like. You know, um, a very populist type government to uh, a lot of social unrest. Um, and, uh, and then you look at, you know, we're likely going to fall to China and with China's 2049 plan. Uh, it, you know, that is definitely their, their angle. And, and there's a good chance that, that the U S dollar will, will lose this reserve currency status at some point. Um, now within that, you know, those, those larger, you know, multi, you know, hundred years type of type time spans, there's this, um, there's this other book uh, called the fourth turning which is all about um, breaking things down into, um, into about four generations of time, roughly about, roughly about 80 years. And you see these generations, uh, these 80-year blocks, follow a very predictable, predictable pattern over and over again. And even within that, those, uh, those, that 80-year period, there's roughly about four generations, about 20 years each, that occur. And this, these patterns occur over and over again. Um, a lot of it's just due to the fact that uh, what, uh, what you are and where you are in society at the time, how do you, how do you handle like a, a turmoil that's occurring? And how and how you react in the future? Uh, and so you uh, you found that this this there's a very much a generational type of uh, type of uh, pattern. So if you look at like um, right now, uh, we're in the we're about to approach the fourth turning. Um, or turning. Uh, the first uh, turning is is effectively started at the end of World War II, and that's uh, that's when it was a period of just uh, prosperity. That was the time in the in the world or in the U.S. where we saw. Uh, the, you know, most, uh, you know, even making roughly about the same, you could work at the gas station, still afford a home. It was a nuclear family type, type of time. Uh, about when JFK was assassinated, you started seeing things shift from, uh, from that to the, kind of the awakening where a lot of indig- individualism started being celebrated and people trying to, you know, kind of discover themselves. And, and, and that, you know, that was another period of, of just, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of prosperity. Uh, but that around 1984, when Reagan won the the, the second election, you started flip, flipping over to the, the the third turning, which was effectively when we started seeing um, you started th- seeing things starting to get a little bit um, you know uh, and a little bit disheveled, a little bit you know, a little bit questionable. I started seeing some uh, things like the you know the L.A. riots. You saw 9/11. Um, you saw the Columbine, and you know it, a lot of these stuff started happening and started you know started shaking up the the foundation. And then around um, around 2008, with the, the 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 big you know global financial crisis, that's when you started seeing uh, the, the fourth turning occur, 
And that's really marks kind of where we are today. And that um, that's when things start going awry. Uh, this book was actually written in 1997, and it predicted that it, we would see somewhere around 2020. Uh, it was very eerie that we'd we'd see a pandemic. We'd start seeing uh, start seeing uh, wars again, and and it's and, and it punctuates and every single time. But there's a massive war that occurs. If you look 80 years ago uh, from about from now, that's when World War II was. 80 years before that was when the Civil War was. Eight years before that is when we saw the Revolutionary War. And that's just the U.S. This, this pattern has existed across all kinds of nations across, you know, through history. So if you understand where we are, you can start seeing that yeah, we are definitely in a, not only are we in the kind of the, the rising or the falling time of the, the U.S. empire, but we're also in this fourth turning where, we, where you see, uh, you know, a new superpower could be emerging. And, and also where we are from a generational standpoint could also, you know, lead to our, our you know, ultimate downfall. So I think that the risk of a reserve currency, um, losing that is, is very, very high right now, just given the fact that these cycles are all lining up at the, at the very wrong time. Now, I think there's, um, there's something to be said that, you know, that things, you know, if you look at what is actually why a reserve currency uh, actually maintains its hold, it's really uh, if they're doing the most commerce, most trade with a, with a, a nation, that's what, is what, really what dictates if it's going to be a reserve currency or not. China now has more trade than the U.S. does. However, if you look at, uh, I don't remember this exact number, so don't, uh, don't, I'm not sure where I got the source from, but I remember hearing something like 100 million businesses across the world have their accounting system wired to the U.S. dollar. It's going to be very difficult to, to displace that, you know, uh, in, a, in the short run again. And so the, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep a lock hold on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency for, you know, for a little bit longer. Now, I think if, the, um, if we do go to a digital currency, uh, it makes the most sense to to go with the U.S. dollar because it is the you know it is the current reserve currency and people will trust it where they might not trust um, you know uh, pick your your favorite token out there. But I so I do think that there's a chance that our reserve currency might last much much longer. Uh, but you know it, you know we'll see. It, I guess history will we'll see if it does repeat again. Well, that's all terrifying. Uh, <laughs> so uh, okay, follow up question on that one though. So why do you think it's going to be China? Why why China as the next big superpower economically beyond the obvious that they are growing quickly? Well, I, I think the biggest the biggest problem the U.S. has is, is very short term how we think. We think in election cycles. Uh, we do we do all of um, you know pretty much all of our planning based around you know these very short term type outcomes. Where if you look at China, they've taken you know and I guess in the the formation of the CCP was nineteen forty nine. Um, and they pretty much had this goal, this multi-generational goal that all leaders uh, like adhered to, to actually go and make sure China was a superpower in 2049. And so I think that the biggest downfall of the U.S. is it's just too short-sighted, where the CCP has taken this very long-term type of view. And I think it's going to be very difficult for, for the U.S. to compete with that because we just we think too short-term. It's one advantage of an authoritarian government, I suppose. You know, the one negative, though, it's it's been playing out very interestingly in the Ukrainian conflict is having a centralized control where you have, you know, no one gets to make a decision on the battlefield. It all has to roll up to some, you know, general and then even that general's, you know, his boss until you finally get the person who says, yes, you can drop a bomb here or whatever. It makes it incredibly difficult for the Russians to function and everything, their supply chains are very hampered by this and all kinds of stuff. So... In one way, economically, maybe it is great. In other ways, militarily, maybe not so great. That's true. Interesting. 
So let's switch back to investing. Um, this was an interesting tangent. I'm glad we went down there. Um, I've been thinking for a while now, um, this, this phrase I can't get out of, uh, of my head. It's like, uh, you're too poor to get rich, uh, which, you know, I realize is, is not true. I mean, people bring themselves up from nothing all the time, but, but there are certain things that are standing out more and more to me as being sort of institutional classism, um, for lack of a better term. Um, and so one of the, the simplest ways I like to explain this to people who are not in your line of work. So they require a little more explaining is, uh, some I'll be like traveling down a road and I have the option. I can travel on the main road or I can go in the toll lane, um, which uh, in Texas you just pay for it. It's not like I have, you know, not, it's, like, it's not like a carpool lane where I have to have a certain amount of people in there. I just decide I want to go down this road and I pay more and I get there. And so maybe I save a couple of minutes every day, uh, which, you know, time is money. So that's kind of somewhat useful. Um, but also uh, I'm less likely to interact with police officers. I'm less likely to get into a wreck. Um, even a minor rack, you know, just a little fender bender, that fender bender may not seem like very much, but when you add it up compounding, like, okay, well that fender bender is there, but I was maybe not ready to pay for this out of pocket expense right then and there. Uh, my insurance, it says it's my fault. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of in trouble on this one a little bit, or I don't want to tell my insurance about it at all. So I'm going to pay for it. And now the cop sees me with a busted taillight or whatever, and it just starts spiraling, right? This, this thing just keeps happening. And it all stemmed from me deciding to spend an extra dollar or two to go down a different road. And so in, in this world, there's this whole concept of uh, accredited investors uh, or people who have enough money in an account to be able to become a pattern day trader. Um, like what, what is sort of the minimum amount of money you think it would take to be in your world and actually make money? Um, let's separate the the um, the, the type of, of way of making money. So either sure. have the the public market uh, versus the uh, versus the private market. So private market you need to be accredited to go invest in. It's uh, not to say that accredited investors make any better decisions of than, than the, the large population. <laughs> I can tell you for a fact that uh, that in most cases they do not. Uh, that they just can handle a massive drawdown, uh, unlike most most uh, most people. Now, um, so. Th- that's different from on the public market. You definitely need to have, um, and just to stay in the public, uh, private market real quick, you need to have, um, I've done the math on this quite a few times, at minimum 10 private investments, uh, most likely 20 investments to really be able to, to realize an expected return that's positive. And the reason for that is uh, uh, if you're doing a private investment, most of the time it's a startup. And uh, the stats are, are not great. Uh, 64.8% of all startups will not return the money back. So it's just that last call, a third that has the lion's share of the, of the returns. And now the nice thing about that, it's very asymmetrical to what that return profile looks like. So if you if you hit it out of the park, you're talking hitting like, you know, 100x as opposed to, you know, 5%, you sure. know. Uh, so it is a, a massive windfall. And they, that should hopefully make up for all those losses that you do incur. Uh, so I think the, um, I think from the private market, the biggest thing is you just need to be able to write, you know, large, you know, a lot of checks. Average minimum check size in most cases is 25K. Uh, for most angel type investments, so you're talking that you're gonna you need you know 250 to a half million dollars just to to have a chance minimum, minimum to be able to do anything on on the uh, startup world. Now flipping over to the public market side, and, and an extra million dollars on top of that to be accredited. Correct. So 1.5 million ish to just get started. 
minimum. Just because no, you you can ha- you can take some of that cash. You can start a million and just say take some of that cash and, and put it into a private investment, mm-hmm. and uh, so that would still count towards net worth and sure. still still okay. count. But still, yes, it, it, it's still it's a lot of money. Sure. Um, now on the um, public market side, well, th- there is a very good reason why uh, why there is a day trading limit. I don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere around ninety percent of day traders will you know they wash out. They will lose. They will blow up their account. And uh, and the, the the biggest issue is that they they take on too much risk for what the, the current position is. They see the ability to you know to triple up their money by buying a Tesla call way out of the money, and there's earnings coming up. That's you know that's uh, that doesn't work out too often. Um, and but they they will take that risk anyways, and sometimes they get lucky, which is some of the worst things that ever happen. If you're a day trader uh, and you get lucky in the beginning, that's again, probably the worst thing to possibly happen because you take on way more risk than you, than you really need to. But for you to really understand your risk levels of how much risk you're taking on is something that most the average person does not know how to do. And so I, I think that uh, I do think the 25k limit on for uh, for pattern day trading is a very good thing. There's ways you can get around it. I believe you can do forex without that minimum. There, there's a few ways you can get around it, but uh, it, it is there for a reason. Um, so you know, I, I I do think that in general that that having some of these um, these regulations is effective and actually saves a lot of a lot of people a lot of money. Hmm. Why not just have it based on the types of trades? Like you can't do anything that can get you to zero or. It has to be some percentage of your net worth as opposed to a hard number like that because, you know, maybe someone's willing to take 50% of their money off the table just to go and do this because they feel very confident they can do it. Well, fine, but you can't go to zero. Yeah, I mean, um, I I think a lot of times you do have different margin requirements based off the type of things that you're trading. So if you're trading, um, if you're doing options, your margin requirements are or, um, you know, they have to, you have a much, you know, I guess you can't get no as much margin mm-hmm. versus and, uh, versus say a regular common stock. You, you don't need to have nearly as, you can have a much higher margin. Now, even, you know, look at, um, at Robin hood and, and some of the other ones when you had the wall street bets types, mm-hmm. uh, that was all, that was all coming out. Well, the, the, there's certain stocks that had a higher margin requirement because they were inherently more risky. And so they, they did it to, at a stock by stock level. Um, and so I think that is actually a very good thing because, they are pretty much trying to protect you, protect you against yourself, and uh, I, I think that actually was a very good thing. So they, they, that is that is occurring. It's just it's not very obvious. Another thing I thought that was kind of interesting was when um, the Associated Press got compromised. Their Twitter uh, page got compromised. They started saying something about some stock, and suddenly that stock just shot through the roof or whatever, and they sold out. Um, that's something that the average investor maybe could weather because they're not going to be focused on this, this uh, algorithmic, you know, analysis of what the AP is saying in that split second that that all went through. Um, whereas a robot is just going to assume it's correct and go for it. Um, so maybe there's some upside to being just a normal schleb uh, <laughs> with just a little bit of cash in the bank and, yeah, computers do, uh, they move fast. So, uh, but the nice thing is they have proper risk controls in place. It's all, it's all programmed in. So they, uh, they don't make nearly as many mistakes as a human does. So tell me about seek and destroy algorithms. I mean, I've read a bit about them, but, um, they seem like the, if someone were really, really good at this, they could completely crush everybody else in the market. Yeah. So seek and destroy algorithms are a way, um, that, um, a lot of hedge funds will go make a little extra money. Uh, pretty much if you have, say, a major support level, 
um, they know that people are that they that people know there's a support level, and so they said if if it goes below this level, um, I know that's probably going to go down, so I want to get out of the stock. And so um, what Seek and Destroy algorithm does is it quickly uh, does does a giant sell order to go take out all those stops. You can see all those all those uh, those orders on on, on what, call, what you call it on the book. So you can go see that there's a bunch of people that are below this level that are willing to sell if it, if it or they want to sell if it goes below this level, and they will go and and take all all of them out and then. Uh, pop it back up and then people also get FOMO and they jump right back into that trade and then, you know, but now at a higher price. So the hedge fund is able to make up, make that Delta. And so that, that is a very common technique. You see it, you know, there's, that's done all the time. I'll tell you the way to get around it. Uh, what I do is that um, you can do uh, well and, and do advanced, some advanced orders. You can pretty much do it based off of a moving average as opposed to a pure stock, you know, stock price move. And so when you see those little blips real quick, it goes down, it goes up. Uh, you don't get hit by that. Uh, so it, it actually is much more effective um, to you know at least avoid those seek and destroy algorithms. Mm. But ultimately, you still want you said you wanted to sell at some price point. So that's that's a stop. So we're saying it's like if it goes, say you have Apple, if it Apple goes below a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. you want you know okay, I, I need to get out. I don't want I want to sell this because I don't want to take a big loss, mm-hmm. which is a very smart thing. You should always have stops on everything. Yeah, ne- never not have stops. <laughs> um, but. Uh, what happens is that they will that they the algorithms know that there, there's a lot of people below that 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 hundred dollar. There's a very much a psychological level of, of like the round numbers, mm-hmm. and so they know there's a bunch of people below that that number that would uh, that would have that has stop have stops in place. They can more or less take them all out, get them to you know go sell, um, and then they can they can they can they can shoot it back up. And uh, and a lot of times people will come back into the market at a at a worse price and be worse off worse off for it. Mm, interesting. So the current um, thing I'm hearing from you know, economists in general is uh, the rental generation. They're just not going to own literally anything. It kind of started with the blockbusters, you know, like you don't own your own videotapes anymore. And, and now we have Uber. We don't, you don't own your own car anymore. And you don't, you certainly don't own your house. There's just no way you can't afford that. I mean, that's truly a pipe dream for most people. Um, where does the natural conclusion go? I mean, where, what else can, what else can, can rent seekers own that they don't already own of people's things? I mean, we have, we're literally jeans. You can rent those, uh, rent the rack. I mean, we're, we're really getting to the point where you don't own anything at all. Yeah. The sharing economy is definitely taken, taken hold. Uh, people are way more comfortable with the idea of actually, you know, that they don't actually own something and they just, they let someone else use it. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that, that trend persists over the long term, or if that's just uh, you know a short term, you know maybe it's uh, one of the things with this, this current generation in the in the, for, in the four turnings. But uh, you know it's uh, it is it definitely is definitely a theme that that we're seeing, um, and you know and I don't know where it stops. I think uh, I think we're starting to see uh, uh, what's a WeWork uh, founder yeah. He's pretty much doing, trying to do the same thing now with uh, uh, with with the single family residences. So like that there that that. That movement is still going. I mean, there is something to be said about, um, I saw one model where it was a, it's a house that you own, you own, technically own this thing, but you can basically, you know, pack it and put it on the back of a truck and ship it over to Los Angeles. And now they put it in this kind of stack of these houses. And now you live in Los Angeles and now you, you, you want to start living in San Francisco, you pack up your house and you move it over. And so truly portable living like that does seem to make some, some sense. You don't own the land. You may own the things inside of it. You may not even own the structure. 
you certainly don't own the truck that takes you to and fro. Um, but it gives you a lot of autonomy to go wherever you want. Um, but I'm curious kind of how, how that kind of future, how those people are going to think about things like, like money and you know, what, what even, what do you even do with money? What do you even really need money? Because other than a handful of dollars to pay your rent and, you know, watch your Netflix or whatever, like what are you even doing with it? Um, what, why does someone want to be super wealthy in the United States when they basically get all the same things? They can travel anywhere they want and they can live anywhere they want. They can work anywhere they want. I mean, everything's digital. Everything's over zoom. Um, why, why do I care about making a million dollars a year versus 50,000 a year? Yeah. I think, you know, what we're seeing in society right now is that a lot of people have stopped trying to follow the path that you're supposed to follow. You know, you, you go to, you, you graduate high school, you go to college you go get a career and you go, you know, have 2.5 kids. And, you know, like that, that's, uh, that paradigm is starting to shift and people realize that you don't have to follow the, the typical traditional path. And I, I love it. I think that's one of those things that, you know, this movement has been going on for a while. I mean, really first, I first even was made aware of it was when I read the four hour work week. Mm. I mean, that, that was, uh, that, that was, that was mind blowing to even think that you could possibly do that given that fact that I'd been very traditional up to that point. Um, so I do think that movement is is going to continue, and I, I think that I think it's a great thing to see. I do think that people are going to be um, you're going to see a lot more fractional ownership. Um, you look at even homes like there's even like uh, some of the crypto uh, crypto techniques. There there's you can start buying you know fractional shares of homes now, and it's almost like a, a, an easier way of doing a timeshare. So I do think that this this trend is is here. I have a quick anecdote about that. I I was once talking about that book to a friend of mine who's. Uh, He's kind of already lives that life to some degree, which I thought he'd find it interesting about that book. I'm like, oh, have you ever read the four hour work week? He's like, yeah, I just can't see working two more hours a week. <laughs> so they're definitely out there. Um, so uh, you talked a little about, about the United States being very short sighted. Um, but I also think companies are very, very short sighted. Um is there a way that we could build a better type of a company, something that that just isn't profit-driven over the next, you know, three months and thinks maybe in the 10 years out, let's say, or, you know, maybe even just a year, just a year out, like, and focused more on really growing a business and what it takes to get the fundamentals right and focusing on the R&D for the first half of the year instead of just, like, two weeks before they have to start selling whatever's on the back of the truck? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, um, it'd be great. Uh, I think that one of the challenges with, especially with the stock market, if you're a public company, you are quarter to quarter. And uh, to really be able to do something big sometimes, either you have to just be able to handle the pain of having your, your share price just get crushed, which is not always easy, uh, especially when you're, you're having to report to a board of directors. Um, or else you have to do something like what Dell did, which they, they go private and then they go restructure do what they need to do and then re go public, you know, and that's, I think that's the, that's typically what we're, what we're seeing. Um, there are, you know, there are, uh, companies out there are trying to take a much more long-term type view. Um, and the problem is that they, they a lot of times they are getting penalized for it and which is unfortunate. Um, I, I think the, you know, the, the whole idea is you, I think Warren Buffett is doing very well with Berkshire Hathaway where he pretty much says, you know, he pretty much tries, uh, getting only people that are going to, they're going to hold the stock for the long term. Uh, and I think that he's done a very effective job with that. And he pretty much says that he does not care about quarter to quarter. You almost have to have, have that as part of your culture uh, if you're going to really be able to do that well. And I, I don't think that's something that many 
uh, founders or CEOs are, are willing to go do just because it is it is very difficult. Especially because they're bonused on quarterly earnings for the most part. They're not, or stock movement or something like that, which is, it's an ugly loop. It basically means you're stuck in this hell of trying to make sure your quarterly profits are getting up, which is good for shareholders, yeah. but terrible for the business. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of CEOs are professional CEOs. They were not founders. So that, you know, I think the, the major difference I've seen is the people that have, st- have been founders and, and ran a public company, they do have a, a longer term view where professional CEOs that just come in, they, they are pretty much making most of their the economics through bonuses. I think that's where you see a lot of the detriment. I've been th- saying this for a while. Um, and I'd love to hear whether you agree with this or not. <clears throat> so the human body, I think, is very similar to a company in the sense that um, we have genetics and we have epigenetics. Uh, so genetics would be sort of your your operating agreement when you're starting the company, your shareholders agreement with the two or three founders, co-founders or whatever, you know, maybe some employment docs or whatever get started. And that's about it. That's, you know, your LLC documents with the, the state, you know, it's like five or six things that have to get done for any like real company. But as soon as you start uh, taking on additional things like contracts with vendors, contracts with customers, contracts with new employees, contracts with uh, the state or, you know, something that you have to do above and beyond what you're normally asked to do, um, or God forbid, if you go public, uh, you are now taking on the epigenetics. Uh, This is very similar to like a virus or something like your body just got reprogrammed. Um, Like you didn't, you didn't necessarily want it to go this way, or maybe you were okay with it at the time and you thought it would be great to do this, but whatever your, your body now is doing something different than it was originally designed to do. And, um, to me, people don't spend enough time thinking about what, what this thing, this, this code that they're injecting into their body, this code that they're injecting in their company in this case is going to do for the company. Like, what is this real, what incentives suddenly get changed and there's a bunch of different examples of this like like for instance let's say you have insurance right what are your what is your uh what are you supposed to do are you supposed to get worse at everything so now you you, because your insurance is going to pay for the downside is that really what we're saying well no because the insurance isn't going to give you the money if you keep screwing up they'll give you the money once you know because accidents happen but they're not going to keep reinsuring you year after year if you're constantly a liability for them so so what's your what's what are you supposed to do now? Well, now you're supposed to not trigger your insurance. Uh, you're supposed to do everything right is what you're supposed to do. So, insurance basically is just uh, a way to punish yourself <laughs> so you do the right thing, and the occasional downside of of you not doing the right thing. And these are the kinds of little pieces of code that get injected in companies. Some of them are good, and some of them are terrible. Um, I've seen a lot of agreements, uh, with employees that are just terrible agreements. You're basically just adding a bunch of liabilities to this company, um, not assets, true liabilities to the company. So like, how do you get from an IPO being this hugely detrimental thing to being potentially a positive thing for the company beyond just the short term financial windfall? Yeah, I think the, there's a lot of benefits being a public company. You have more access to capital. You have more liquidity. So even like we talk about the, the DCF models of, of value a company, when you have more liquidity, the the, the discount rate uh, is reduced. So your value of your company goes up. Uh, so there's 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 a lot of benefits to to that for the, for shareholders. So uh, but those benefits you have to now weigh against the downside of that, which is you have to report 
quarterly earnings. You have complete visibility to of everyone of what you're doing. Uh, you have to, you know, your competition can see what you're doing, you know, and actually know your, your numbers. Uh, it is a it is a difficult thing to balance, um, and I think a lot of companies have to decide uh, what is the direction they want to go. Um, I think ultimately a lot of a lot of founders, a lot of their investors ultimately want to see an IPO because that's their big liquidity event. That is like the, the ultimate. That is the goal. And so I think if you don't want to have that as the goal, when you set up a set up a company, you need to be finding investors that are okay with not having that massive liquidity event. Maybe okay having a, a company into into perpetuity and, and living off of dividends. So it's almost an agreement that you need to make with your investors from the get go. If you don't, then you're pretty much going to be uh, you're going to be beholden to them and having those liquidity events down the road. So you think that there's a way to do it, sort of maybe like a B Corp, a new type of corporation or something where you just like, this is not necessarily a, a for good company, but this is a for the good of the investors company. I think, yes, for sure. I mean, there's some companies that, that have now have the ESG distinction or they, they, they say they're ESG. Investors inherently know that if you're an ESG company, that you're, uh, that you're not going to be for profit on, in, all, in all cases. And uh, in other, you know, there's a lot of debate that that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but you know, I think that a lot of people do want to have uh, have people um, doing the right thing for society and actually trying to protect the environment and 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 also being being good stewards, good citizens within within you know the, the country as well. And so I think I think as an investor, you have to decide you know where do you where do you fall? Do you are you a pure capitalist, mm-hmm. or are you also trying to maybe make some money but with a little bit less, but also do good? And I think but. At the end of the day, it really comes down to making sure you pick those right investors from from day one. So, I mean, the idea of the market being driven by capitalism is is an interesting one, but I'm not sure it's right anymore. Like once upon a time, we used to say, you know, if you're investing in a company, especially a, a stock, right? You're giving the common man and every every person who just happens to have a little money in their pocket the ability to uh, share in the upside of a company they had some belief in. But now it seems like everything's driven by volatility. Um, you really have very few people investing in companies because they believe in the fundamentals. And you have a lot more people investing in whether they think it's going to go up or down today. And that's moving away from capitalism and more towards the sport of watching this ping-ponging back and forth, which is incredibly interesting, but also not what I ter- typically call capitalism, where you're seeing this upside re- related to building something. Yeah, I think that's, um, that is a challenge right now that you are seeing that people have, uh, they care more about the price action as opposed to the fundamentals. And um, th- that absolutely, absolutely does occur. And I think in the short term, the market is a, a, uh, a voting mechanism that decides, is it, you know, is it going to go up or going down? However, over the long term, the intrinsic value uh, will you know will come out and and so it really depends that the type of investor are you an investor where you're looking for the long term which you're going after the fundamentals you're looking at you know what the the current economic conditions are and is, is this going to improve and, and 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 cause this company to go to, to succeed or are you looking at it from a you know just trying to uh, capture a small little small move in the company and make a make a buck now it's interesting. I like being in venture capital. I you know I, I see both sides. Uh, I, I'm a day trader, but I'm also in venture capital. Mm-hmm. So in, in venture capital, I have a, this very much fundamental belief that I you know it has to be fundamentals that are actually going to drive this because there is no in the private market there's you know, no short term trade. You have to you're pretty much you're putting your money in and it's gone until they actually have a, a liquidity event of some sort. 
and uh, where on the on the public market, well, I can you know the liquidity is a has a downside that you you can get in and out real quick, and so you don't have to have nearly as much conviction behind a company. Uh, now there's you know long term capital gains. There's reasons why you might want to hold it longer because there are there are some tax benefits to it, but ultimately you know it is uh, it it's a, just a different mindset of what you're looking at, and so I think you know um, I think over the long term you know a, a private investment is a much better one just because you you are uh, forced to uh, to to uh, to take the long term view. Uh, there's really three ways uh, of getting alpha uh, as an investor. You either have to have an information advantage, so you you can uh, you know, you know something about inside information that that you know the average person doesn't know. You can't do that legally in the public market. However, on the private market, you can do it all day long. You have to have the other option is having analytical advantage. So you have that same data, but you're just better at analyzing to know if this is actually a good thing or a bad thing. Now you can do that in both the private market, although it's a little bit diff- more difficult. Uh, you can, but you also can do it very much so in the, in the public market. But there's a lot of really good people, a lot of smart computers, a lot of money there thrown at to to analyze it more effectively. The third thing is having a behavioral advantage. So you don't get FOMO. You don't get fear of missing out. You don't get, uh, you don't see a massive drawdown and panic and sell. Now, the private market has a big advantage that you're just inherently, you, that you remove that behavioral component because once, as long as you don't have FOMO when you first get in, uh, you're, you know, that's the only thing you have to worry about. Uh, once you're in, you're in. And there's nothing you can do from a behavioral standpoint. It's, it's out of your hands. You, uh, you've effectively removed yourself from, from that equation. Uh, maybe you can do some activist things, but really there's not a whole lot. On the on the public market, though, you know, there's, I can tell you what, the use, animal spirits are a real thing. Humans are irrational. Mm-hmm. They will go and sell, you know, when they shouldn't. They should go, and they'll go, uh, they, they'll go buy when they shouldn't. And it, it's just they almost inherently do the wrong thing because uh, there's just that, that is that's just human nature. That's interesting. Yeah. So the whole buy low, uh, sell high thing. People will think that they're doing that, and then they actually get in there, and they're they just. They get freaked out. They're too excited. Yeah, one one thing that's always interesting: people are very successful when they're paper trading, when they have no emotion about it because it's not real money. And then as soon as they actually flip over to real money, they fall apart. And this happens over and over again. Wow, that's kind of scary. Well, it's <laughs> interesting. One of the things that I I think about is I know that that you know I'm human. I have that bias. Uh, one of the things I try doing is I I have this hybrid model where I have I I mix both human element of it, me making decision about, you know, where things are going to go, you know, uh, but then I have uh, a computer that helps me go manage the, the trade. And so once I go do the order, say I'm going to buy Apple, uh, it flips over to my, now my program that goes and runs and manages the trade for me. So I remove uh, the, 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 the human component to it, that behavioral component, and let the co- computer, which is, just looks at the cold, hard numbers, uh, is this going to, is this a good trade still or do I need to, to exit it? And I found that that uh, using that technique has been, you know, definitely much more successful. Mm-hmm. As long as the stock doesn't go to zero, there's no reason you can't hold on to it forever, too. You know, you can just wait it out because stocks generally do rebound. They do, but look at 2001. How many stocks never came back? Or even you yeah, know, as long as it doesn't go to zero. <laughs> I, I think even you know, there's so many stocks out there that that have had 90% drawdowns, and they're unlikely unless you hold it for hundred years that they're ever going to get backed up to that point. So mm. I do agree with that in a normal market condition, but there are times when that doesn't, that does not hold true. Interesting. Is there any other gotchas that should, people should be aware of? Oh, there's so many. I gotchas. mean, like kind of like that. Well, like there's, there's really kind of fun ones, like in certain places, like trading doesn't happen that day or whatever. So you, your algorithm set up to do something very specific on a specific day, but the, the market's closed. You, you literally cannot do that thing. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's, yeah, there's lots of things out there. Um, yeah, I, I, we can go on for hours on, on, on this one, but. <laughs> All right, I'll leave it at that. So can you tell us about SPACs? There's been a lot in the news about it, a new sort of way to get public, go public very quickly. Can you? Um, yeah, SPACs actually existed quite a bit, um, even 10, 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and, and, and they were very, very popular back then. They, now they just started coming back in vogue uh, during like 2020, 2021. Um, and you know, there, there are a lot of benefits to it for the, uh, you know, for the company, the target company. Um, but there's usually not a whole lot of benefit for you to go as an investor or a trader to go put money into that SPAC. Um, unless you're uh, one of the few that actually go and, uh, they get in very, very early and they just pretty much say, the money's going to sit here and either you're going to, you're going to make money. You can't lose money, uh, because either you're going to get uh, you're going to hit, get a target company and then you choose if you want to, to uh, go, go do that target company or you get money back plus some, some interest. Um, you know, I think we're definitely seeing SPACs come down. Um, they're, it's most, I'd say 99% of people don't understand how a SPAC actually works. And even truth be told, I couldn't tell you all the details of how a SPAC works either. Uh, but I know that I, it's probably better to steer clear of them, uh, them <laughs> as, a, as a trader investor um, unless you're going to be putting money in initially. Interesting. So the way I've been effectively told that it works is more or less just there's a company and you let's say you have a hundred million dollar idea and their spec is worth ten million dollars. You're basically buying their ten million dollars from them of their value of the company. And if the stock goes up uh, by a hundred million dollars because you're adding hundred million dollars, it's no big deal. It's just ten million dollars off of that additional raise. So now you're left with $90 million plus whatever the original company is worth, which it's nothing, you know, it's just an IPO shell. And now you have or $90 million to go walk around and build your company with. Yeah. It is a way for companies to, um, yeah, to go, go public sooner and actually have a, have some increased cash on hand. So there are definitely some benefits if you're the target company. There's so many SPACs that pretty much didn't have a target company and they are, or pretty much either had a, you know, I think, uh, Donald Trump, he lost his spec because they couldn't find a target company and he had to return all the capital. Um, so th- th- a lot of them don't want to do that because there's a whole lot of work to get it set up. And if you, if you can't find a target company, then you're effectively, you know, all that goes away. And so a lot of times they take deals that are probably less than ideal because they're running out of time. So how does that, <clears throat> I mean, I know that there's a very big expense associated with going IPO, like it's a million dollars plus about a year's worth of work with you know, people sitting in your office constantly over your shoulder, looking at every single thing. Like, what does it typically take for a company to use a SPAC to take their company? It's, it's still a, pre- a big endeavor. Like, it's, it's not the same level of um, an IPO. You don't have to do as many roadshows, um, but you are still having to um, go through the whole process. And it is uh, it is a daunting process. It takes, I've seen, I know a number of companies that it's taken at least six months to go do. Um, but it, you know, it, it is, uh, it is a, a bit simpler. It's a bit easier, um, just because you, you don't have to do a lot of that work. Um, it, uh, but it, it is, uh, it, it is, it's not like just a, a golden, you know, golden bullet. You can just kind of, you know, uh, just go do that and, and you, you can, uh, circumvent all the, all the tough things about an IPO. Somewhat easy, but not easy, easy. Yeah. <clears throat> there are certain companies I've run across that, um, I just felt like they should probably go public, but you know, them getting a million dollars and spending a whole year doing it is probably unlikely that they would be able to cross that bridge. <clears throat> yeah, most companies need to get into, you know, a multi-billion dollar type range before it's even worth it from uh, just an overhead point of view to actually go do. And that's one of the challenges is how do you, how do you make companies able to go public 
earlier. Um, and I think that's one of the, the challenges. Um, if you just look at the um, the private market versus public market, um, the the public market, um, like if you look at a lot of the value creation historically was occurred in, when a company went public. So looking at like Google or Facebook, when they went public, um, uh, they're relatively low market cap. Most of the value creation occurred while they were public. However, because the bar has gone so high for a lot of these companies to go public, a lot of these companies are staying private longer. And but what's happening is that all the value creation for those companies occurring while it's private, which locks out, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, locks out anyone unless you're a credit investor from it. So there, there needs to be some way for companies to go, to go public sooner with a lower overhead. It costs a company um, somewhere around $3 million to maintain compliance from a regulatory standpoint. Per, and per year? Per year. Wow. Uh, and for that. New York Stock Exchange, for instance. And um, so if you're a $100 million top-line company, that's a huge, you know, huge chunk of it. So it's just not, not reasonable unless you're into that, that, that unicorn-type type, type range to go, to go public. Gotcha. So we've been hearing a lot in the news about the rate of employment. Um, what do you think the true rate of employment is, or how is, how is that measured today, and how should it be measured? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I don't know. There's a quick answer. Um, I, you know, I, I think going back to the inflation um, question a little bit earlier, um, I, I do think that we are seeing, uh, we don't have as, 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 um, as, as not as nebulous as it was before. We, you, I think we, we do have a chance of actually having a soft landing, um, which is, I would never have actually thought in early days. Um, you, you're, you know, the traditional definition of a soft landing is fighting inflation, um, you know, reducing inflation, but not increasing unemployment. I think a more accurate way of thinking about it, it for me at least, is is that you want to see the job openings come down, but maintain steady unemployment numbers. And that's what we're kind of seeing today. So I do think the, um, I think a lot of that is, uh, the, 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 the true number is, you know, is coming down. Um, I, I can, you know, anecdotally, I can see like a lot of, uh, a lot of companies that um, that had big hiring plans from a from tech, technology perspective are all uh, freezing, uh, and they they are up, not retracting. You know, a lot taking a lot of those job postings, you know, off uh, off their websites. So uh, it is definitely coming down. I couldn't tell you exactly where it is. I, I think uh, I, I do think that it is uh, it's reasonably accurate though. So well, there was one comment I saw that um, basically the the amount of people who are employed. Um, is is a useful metric, but the amount of people who are not employed actually accounts for two totally large different group of people. One is people who are looking but can't find. Another group is people who aren't even looking. They've um, given up. They co- totally given up from the whole thing. But that first group is a fairly distinct group that those people are actively sending resumes or trying to go to job interviews or, or at least would say they are even if they're not doing a good job of it. <clears throat> but the way the U.S. government tracks that is they say, well, if they haven't had a job within the last three months, they they fall into that second bucket where they're not even looking. But that's actually not true. That just means that they just still haven't found a job. The unemployment benefits have run out. Right. So it seems like the true unemployment rate is probably f- wildly miscalculated as far as, you know, the people who want a job and just simply can't, for whatever reason, can't figure out how to get one compared to people who just ran out of unemployment benefits. Yeah, I think a lot of them, um, again, anecdotal, uh, but I've seen quite a few people go to gig like, uh, gig, gig working, mm-hmm. um, and they are technically unemployed still. They have no W-2 income, yet they are generating 1099 income. And um, so I do think that 
what people are just inherently at some point, if they can't get a job after three months, they're going to be going to Uber. They're going to go, you know, go to, you know, uh, go run, you know, postmate deliveries or, you know, so that it's going to, they're going to take, you know, a different way of actually generating income. And, uh, and so I, I do think that they are getting somewhat employed. They at least have some income coming in, uh, just might not be a, a true W2 type income. Interesting. So two quotes I wanted to read to you, um, which I'm sure you've probably read both of them. <clears throat> Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted that she was, quote, wrong about the path that inflation would take. And German Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck said, because we didn't know, to be honest, and nobody knew how this gas market is intertwined, meaning with the, the entirety of the market. So first of all, um, were those things, do you think, investors knew well? That um, inflation was heavily tied and um, and gas was heavily intertwined. Yeah, I mean, it was very well known uh, that that this that uh, inflation was yeah not transitory and uh, and I, I think um, I, I don't know as much about the gas uh, side, but you know I, it was very. I don't think anyone had any preconceived notions that that things are way worse than than you know and than what the the Fed was letting on. So if that's the case, where you feel like your cohort of traders knew this fairly well, and this was common knowledge, which I think it was. I mean, I feel like I knew this information, which, and I'm not at all what you are. How did we end up with these people in these jobs? I mean, this isn't like this isn't like a, a just a random pattern day trader who just had a couple bucks to throw at some bad ideas. These are the heads of the monetary systems for two major countries in you know, in the Western hemisphere. Um, these people sound like idiots. Um, they sound like they have no, nobody who's informing them of what's really going on out there. And they're just throwing darts at the wall. Um, how did this happen? I mean, isn't, shouldn't there be some sort of stop gaps? Shouldn't they have some sort of cabinet made of actual professionals who can tell them that this is what's going to happen? Yeah, I think, I think they did know. Uh, I think that they're, you know, they, inflation is a, you know, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they pretty much had to maintain a script to, you know, that, that inflation was not occurring. Um, I do think one of the reasons how a lot of them have got elected is that we don't get the best in the, the best actually going into the, the public sector. Uh, they're not going to be, you know, not going to, uh, they're not going to, you know, hold an office or be in the cabinet. They're, they are pretty much going to be making money. If they're any good at all, they're going to be out there on the private side uh, uh, and making, making money. And so we, we don't get the best and brightest. Uh, the people that do, unfortunately, um, I take a step back. People are motivated by a few different things. It's either family, it's uh, it's power, or it's money. And unfortunately, for mostly the, the political side, it's uh, they are more focused on power as opposed to to money. And the people that really really understand the space well and very very competent are more focused on on monies. And so they're going to go. They're going to stay private and not be a, a public official. And they would probably avoid it if they were even offered the position. I, I know I would. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> Another version of that same thing is I, I once heard that um, the once upon a time, the best and the brightest went to politics. Then they went to wall street and now they're in ads. Um, and so what are you left with in politics? You got the C team, you know, and by those two comments alone, as, as far as financial fiscal understanding, either they're, singing a song unrelated to how they actually feel and how they think, or which I, I kind of hope is true. I, I kind of hope they're lying uh, or they really don't know what they're doing. Either way, I kind of don't want them in charge. Um, that's kind of scary, but 
So how does the average young budding capitalist get rich? What would you do if you were talking to a 20 something who, you know, just got their first job and, you know, and you wanted to, by the time their retirement age, they're famously wealthy. Yeah. So I guess define rich. All right. So there's kind of three ways of thinking about this. Over a hundred million dollars. Over a hundred million dollars. Um, I'll give the quick, you know, depending where you want to end up in your career. Um, If you want to make, you know, have a pretty good um, likelihood of success, you need to be diversified or you need to be something that is going to have a high, high likelihood of of outcome. Um, So if you're more people have become millionaires off of real estate versus anywhere else. So if you're just trying to get into like the low millionaire type status, go into real estate. If you're wanting to get in the call it 50 to really about 50 million to maybe a hundred million, if you're lucky, um, that's probably better to be an investor. Uh, it's just, you can, uh, you have a diversified portfolio. You don't, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're broad and, uh, and you're going to, you know, do well over time to becoming like rich, you know, super rich, you know, billionaire type status, you need concentration. And to do that, you need to have founded a company. It is, it is very, very few individuals that have ever gone, gone to a billionaire status investing. Uh, almost everyone that's ever gone to a billionaire status has done it through founding a company and, and, uh, and had that concentration to get them to that level. So, um, but the problem with that is that, you know, most companies fail. Mm-hmm. So that you're taking a lot of risk on and, uh, to, to go do that. And it, if it works out, you're, yeah, you're gonna be, you'll be filthy rich, but there's a good chance that you end up with nothing or very, very little. Mm-hmm. So I think it just depends on where you w- want to be in that spectrum. Um, I, you know, and again, also now if you're looking at private versus public, I would, I would probably focus on private initially, just be given, I think most of value creation and wealth generation occurs on the private side today. Uh, that might not always be the case, especially as, uh, as, um, you see companies starting to tokenize themselves and, you know, they might be able to go public sooner, but at least today it, it is done. It's, it's, you need to be on the private side. Uh, and it, because, um, you know, that's, that's where yeah, most of the, the generation of wealth does occur. I have heard some very crazy stories about the real estate market <clears throat> where people will buy up, you know, some set of hotel blocks in some kind of semi third world country, not exactly third world, but you know, uh, certainly not, you know, downtown LA or something. And, uh, they will just befriend all the politicians and, you know, pay off whatever it takes. And then suddenly laws get passed and make it impossible for anyone else to create those things. Uh, so now they have a monopoly of those, uh, apartment blocks and, then they'll set up a resort with some friends. Maybe they don't even fund the resort. They just tell their friends, Hey, you know, as long as, as long as you basically put your thing here, I'll give you these tax breaks with the local authorities. And suddenly this thing that was maybe this minor investment overall is worth, you know, 50, hundred, a thousand X, what it was originally worth just because there's no, there's nothing left. This is, this is all the land you're going to have. Mm-hmm. So there, there might be some other kind of clever ways that people could get to the hyper wealthy there's always all kinds of clever tricks out there to, uh, to, to do it. And there's a million ways to get, you know, very, very rich. The problem is finding the right one, you know, and there, and a lot of it also, you have to kind of look to see what is your actual demeanor, your style, uh, to, that's going to be a good fit for you. Are you more conservative by nature? Then maybe you have a more diversified, you know, portfolio type approach. Are you, you know, are you more aggressive Then maybe you go all in on, on one company? Maybe you're just very clever and you, can, you find one of those loopholes that, that allows you to, uh, to scale very, very quickly your, your real estate empire. Mm-hmm. I th- think, you know, it, it's, uh, the challenge is, is figuring out the, the right way for you. So you also mentioned uh, Powell and the transitory nature. Um, I think, 
I think that there is something to um, understanding the bellwethers, understanding where things are going. Um, if you if you can see that uh, what inflation really looks like, and you can sort of hedge against these things. Um, so where to go? Where do people go to find out about these kinds of things and get better at investing? Like if you were to give a hit list of things that you would say you've got to go read these things on a regular basis because this is where this is where the real knowledge is coming from. These these are the real the real economists who seem to know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's always a that's there's a lot of noise out there and trying to find hone in and the ones actually have signal. I I think I spend half my time looking at just trying to figure out what actually has, has signal. Um, so a lot, I, I have systems set up in place just so I can start sifting through uh, what's actually, you know, a, a good Twitter account, for instance, versus not a good Twitter account, which actually is getting me, getting value, actually improving my, my actual returns, my equity curve versus who's not. And so that's, that is a very iterative type process and it changes over time. Um, you know, I think if you're looking for higher level, I, I do think like the, um, you know, the, uh, the ISM or the manufacturer's index is a great way of kind of starting and understanding uh, and where uh, where the manufacturing is going, because that is a really good precursor to where the S and P is going over the next six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's above fifty, you know, there's a good chance the S and P is going to be up, you know, uh, up higher than it is today. Uh, so there are these 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 places that you can you know techniques that that you can look at. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is is um, really just first starting to understand. Um, macro and and then kind of you know um and, and just having an idea like what what levers go pull like what happens to the the value of the dollar uh if you know if interest rates goes up or inflation goes up just understanding how all those levers uh, pull you know i think probably the the best source for a lot of this to just get to understand it um i do love uh ray dalio did this amazing thing that called the economic machine which is this video that just shows how the, the economy works it's like a 30 minute video, but it's really, really well done. That gives you a nice overview. And then you need to start honing in on those specific aspects of that, uh, of, you know, that you see in that, that video and you'll get a, a much better, clearer picture of kind of where things might be going. Hmm. So what do you think? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? What, what do you think uh, the economy is going to look like in another six months, a year? Uh, it's a great question. I, you know, I, first off, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, no one I'll sign, knows, but I'll sign percentages. <laughs> I, I, I give the edge to that. We are, uh, that the stock market is, is higher, uh, in six months than it is today. Interesting. Um, I, I do think there's a, a very good chance that we have reached a near term bottom. Um, I do think that, uh, that we're, whenever you start seeing news come out, that's negative, And yet the market goes up. That's usually a pretty good sign that we've hit uh, we're getting close to bottom. Now the bottom in the market is, uh, it is a market's inherently a discounting mechanism. So they're looking at where they, they think that the rates are going to, where everything's going to be in six months, actual economy is going to be in six months. So the economy might still dip for the next six months, but, uh, if the market thinks it's going to be better, you know, after that fact that that's what, that's why the prices might be going up. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to look at the, um, looking at the market, uh, the, the market, uh, the stock market is about six months ahead on the real estate. Uh, so if you look at like a REIT, it's about, it, it, see where that, that, that actual price of that REIT is going. That's about, a, that's about a six month precursor to what actually is going to happen in the actual real estate market. Hmm. And you see this kind of across the board. Same any, thing. any other kind of big signals that you pay attention to? Yeah, I, I follow the, um, the semiconductors. Uh, semiconductors are the lifeblood of technology today. So that is like the core component that, that where everything goes. So I heavily follow the semis and what direction they're going to see where uh, NASDAQ is going to go. I think that's uh, that's yeah, a very good precursor. Interesting. Uh, 
All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, so how do people find you and how do they get in touch with you? And uh, I, you know, I don't use it much, but I'm on Twitter. Just my last, my last name, M-O-I-L-A-N-E-N or LinkedIn. You know, I don't have a ton of socials. Well, well hopefully people will reach out to you. You're definitely one of the smartest guys I've met in this space. So I want to thank you for joining me on this uh, episode of the Arsenic Show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm.